Right, uh, thank you all for coming on this wet, windy night when there's little or no transport. We can thank Boris, uh, the mayor, for that. Um, I've got uh, two jobs at the moment, and I'm going to spring up like the Easter Bunny later on as well. Firstly, I'm to welcome you, and indeed to welcome the British uh, Society for the Study of the Middle East, Siddle London School of Economics, which I think has been a very fruitful partnership. The Middle East Centre opened in October 2010 at the London School of Economics, bringing the study of the region into the kind of the bastion of social science in London and established by a generous uh, grant from the Emirates Foundation for Philanthropy and the Amman Trust. Now, since then, I think there's been a great relationship that's developed between the Middle East Centre and the British Society for the Study of the Middle East. I think formed around a good friendship between... Uh, Louise Hasey and Robert Lowe, and that's produced, I think, I thought, superb annual conference in 2012. The annual, this is the second annual lecture that we've, uh, we've hosted, and a very lively graduate section uh, uh, conference also run in 2012 by Filippo, who's somewhere in the audience, who did a great job. There you go, thanks a lot. Uh, always better dressed than the, 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 the senior academics, I noticed, so that's a, that's a lesson we should learn, I think. Right, but also I think we, it's good to uh, welcome Sami Zubeda to the London School of Economics. Now, Paul is going to talk about Sammy's uh, uh, contribution to Middle Eastern studies. So I thought I'd just briefly mention Sammy's contribution to social science. I think completes a uh, declaration of honesty. Sammy uh, uh, examined my PhD, so uh, I owe him a great deal of thanks for that. <laughs> but more importantly, I would have thought, he, what a lot of people don't know is he's a hugely committed social scientist, set up uh, the Department of Politics and Sociology at Birkbeck, and sat, was a founding member of the journal Economy and Society. And what he doesn't know is when we were master's students at SOAS, we used to sneak across to Birkbeck and steal his reading list for the, the master's course he gave in social theory that took us from Marx to Foucault, and that guided a lot of my studies. So I think it's apt that Sammy gives the Brismas a lecture at the heart of social science at London School of Economics. So welcome to both Brismas and Sammy Subeda. Thanks. Thank you very much, Toby. Um, I'm Paul Starkey, Vice President of the British Society of Middle Eastern Studies, for those of you that have never seen me before. Uh, and I'd just like to extend a welcome to the Christmas Annual Lecture on behalf of Christmas itself uh, and to thank LSE for hosting uh, this talk, as they did last year. And as Toby's indicated, we're developing a very fruitful relationship uh, between the society uh, and the school. So thank you for the LSE and thank you to everybody who's walked or run uh, in the absence of many tube trains uh, to get here tonight. Thank you also to IB Taurus for um, sponsorship of this event uh, and um, I'm told that uh, some of Sammy's books may be on sale uh, outside. Uh, it remains also to say of course that afterwards uh, there will be a uh, reception uh, in the hall uh, to the back and left, uh, to which you're all warmly, uh, warmly uh, invited. Um, now, the format of this evening is, is we have uh, the talk, which will be for around, I guess, 45 minutes, followed by uh, opportunity for questions and answers. Uh, and we then move to the second part of the proceedings, which is the award um, 
the Brisbane Annual Award for Services to Middle Eastern Studies, which, as most of you will be already aware, is being awarded this year to Alistair Newton, our past president. And we're also very happy to have with us uh, to, to make the award uh, our new Brisbane president, Francis Guy, uh, who is attending this event uh, for the first time. Um, I'm told that before I do anything else, I am supposed to ask you to ensure that your phones are on silent mode. Uh, so if you could do that, uh, that would be, um, uh, I'd be grateful. So turning to the speaker uh, himself, uh, uh, one sort of conventionally sort of introduces the speaker by saying he knows in, no, he needs no introduction. But in the case of Sammy Spader uh, in London, uh, that is probably true. He will not need much introduction um, to most of you. Uh, and he's been uh, associated with Brismas as well as with Birkbeck College uh, for a long period of time. He is currently Emeritus Professor of Politics and Sociology at Birkbeck and a Fellow of Birkbeck College, a Research Associate of the London Middle East Institute and Professorial Research Associate of the Food Studies Centre, both at SOAS. And in addition to uh, his London positions, he's held visiting positions uh, in many places, including Cairo, Istanbul, Beirut, Aix-en-Provence, Paris, uh, and in the United States. Um, he's written and lectured widely on themes of religion, culture, law, and politics in the Middle East. Uh, among his main publications, we, can, we don't need to mention them all, but uh, Beyond Islam, A New Understanding of the Middle East, published in 2010, Law and Power in the Islamic World, Islam, the People and the State, Political Ideas and Movements in the Middle East. Uh, so, politics and sociology. I'm not a social scientist myself, uh, but um, uh, it's, it's an indication of the breadth of Sami's interests and the ability to cross over, even to those of us that dabble in the arts, uh, that he has also written widely uh, on food in the Middle East, which has a sort of universal appeal. His subject tonight uh, is the quest for cultural authenticity and the politics of identity. So over to you, Sam. Thank you. Well, thank you, dear colleague, for that kind introduction. The quest for cultural authenticity is an integral part of national and nationalist histories and myths of writing the nation. Beyond the nation, it characterizes civilizational pursuits with religious labels such as Christian, Judeo-Christian, and Islamic. I like especially the Judeo-Christian bit, which is quite recent. Uh, they haven't always uh, gone together very well. Uh, these latter occupy an important part of the ideological landscapes of the modern world, crowded with multiple media and channels of communication, establishing and parading identities in contentious cultural politics. Characterizations of authentic cultural identity and essential difference from the other is an essential part of this enterprise. 
we can speak of discourses of difference. Modernity in the Middle East from the 19th century has seen the diversity of identity discourses and accompanying cultural claims. Civilizational identities governed by religion and dynasty, Muslim and Ottoman, gave way to national ethnic characterizations, Arab, Persian, Turkish, Kurdish, and in between. Then in the latter decades of the 20th century, back to religion, and more recently of religious sect superimposed on nations and ethnicities. In each of these phases, claims of cultural authenticity emphasize the difference from the relevant other. Let us trace some of the complexities, some of those differentiations. Ottoman reformist thought, as exemplified by the Tanzimat intellectuals and the young Ottomans in the mid-19th century and later, as well as the Arab Nahda to follow, were enchanted by the ideas of the European Enlightenment, science, rationality, and social order, Herbert Spencer and August Comte, and progress seen as paths of national or imperial resurgence. The obstacles were identified as the old, corrupt, conservative order in which religion played an important part. So was this a revolt against historically given cultural authenticity? Of course not. The contemporary reality was seen as a corruption of a pristine past given in ancestral glories. Thinkers from Namak Kamal, the young Ottomans, to Jamaluddin Afghani and Muhammad Abdo, discovered rationality, science, and democracy in early Islam and the good Salaf. They were the first Salafists, albeit in a totally different register from our contemporaries. Namak Kamal read natural philosophy into the Quran. The Iraqi poet of the 20th century, of early 20th century, Ma'ruf al-Rusafi, wrote a long biography of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, al-Shakhsiyya al-Muhammadiyya, presenting him as an Arab nationalist leader and downplaying all the religious and mystical elements of his narrative, to an extent that he did not publish the book in his lifetime, fearing the religious reactions. His contemporary and rival, Jamil Sutqil Zahawi, fancied himself as a scientific writer and advanced his own ersat theories of nature. His declared adherence to Darwin and the theory of evolution brought him much opprobrium, while sat one day in the cafe that was named after him, Makha Zahawi. He was approached by an angry man asking, are you saying that my grandfather was a monkey? To which he replied, no, my dear fellow, it was my grandfather. Part of this narrative of historical authenticity was the problematic of progress versus backwardness. Why did the East, the Arabs, the Muslims, the Egyptians, etc., fall behind Europe? One type of answer was to blame the Turks. The narrative of the Turkish yoke shared with Greeks and with other Balkans, the idea that they were perfectly civilized Europeans until uh, put under 
Turkish control and forced into repression and backwardness. Taha Hussein, the prominent Egyptian writer of the early 20th century, in his seminal book, Future of Culture in Egypt, considered that Egypt was part of Mediterranean and Hellenic civilization, as well as of the Islamic Arab world. It was on the path to progress, on a, part with Euro on a par with Europe, when arrested by the Turkish conquests. Now it was free again to pursue its modern destiny alongside Europe. Blaming the Turks was shared with some religious reformers, notably Rashid Rida, for the corruption of religion. Needless to say, Turks and Iranian modernist thinkers, discovering their pre-Islamic authenticity, returned the compliment by blaming the Arab conquests and Islam for their decline. Now, the late decades of the 20th century saw the decline of ideological politics in favor of that of identity, particularly the decline of the left, uh, of Marxist and socialist and nationalist linked ideas, in which discourses of civilizational difference, often based on religious essences, came to the fore, exemplified by the prominence and debates of the clash of civilizations. I, alongside many others, have argued that the clash is more often within, not between, so-called civilizations. Witness the affinity between, say, Salafist Islam, U.S. evangelist churches, and Jewish orthodoxy, each contested within their own respective societies. In any case, cultures and civilizations are not discrete entities, but processes in flux. Languages of, of authenticity, however, have insisted on difference and minimized communalities. Now let's look at the field of sexuality and gen gender. The Western stereotypes of the oppression of women in Islam and of the privilege of male dominance and sexuality is countered by some Muslim and other Oriental stereotypes of the sexual laxity of the West and the trivialization and exploitation of womanhood, as well as the evils of homosexuality. Both seem unaware of the commonalities of the two on sexual morality and repression till recent history. Sexual liberation in some women, society, sorry, in some Western societies came in the 20th century as a result of much contention, struggle, and campaigning, assisted by socioeconomic processes. Homosexual acts were a criminal offense in Britain until the 1960s. Abortion, contraception, and divorce remain issues of contention in some Western societies and churches. Homoerotism, especially the love of boys, in various forms was common, is common, and, explain, and ingrained in many Middle Eastern cultures, as is well known, as well, of course, as in many other cultures. And, of course, the issues of women's liberation, the veil, family law reform, and sexuality, have been perennial in ideological debate, social conflicts, and claims of authenticity throughout the modern period sharpening with the rise of Islamism in recent decades. 
These issues of contention came up in acute form under the brief rule of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in 2012-13. Defense of patriarchy in terms of authenticity is illustrated by the Freedom and Justice Party, the political wing of the Muslim Brotherhood, in their response uh, in March 2013 to the UN Declaration on the Elimination and Prevention of All Forms of Violence Against Women and Girls, rejecting the restriction on the husband's rights as incompatible with the genuine character of the Egyptian family and its values enshrined in the Muslim Brotherhood Constitution. The ideological trajectory of women's issues in the 20th and 21st century is well illustrated in the example of Iran. The era of the Constitution and then of Riza Shah saw the reformists advocating women's liberation, confronting conservative and religious resistance, some of which was overcome by Riza Shah's depression. From the 1950s until the 1979 revolution, women made considerable strides into public space in work and politics, as well as the emergence of the modern woman in fashionable modes and makeup among the urban, prosperous, educated classes headed by the royal family itself and the court notables. The whole project of modernity and power under the Shah elicited a new kind of nativist reaction, distinct from that of the traditional conservative religion. It was a modern cultural nationalist revolt against Western modernity and capitalism in favor of a cultural authenticity, which included various versions of Islam, often in combination with leftist ideologies and strands of Marxism, as many of the protagonists started from the leftist affiliations. The root ideologies of uh, this trend was Jalal al-Ahmad and his essay on, well known, on West toxification. Is what, in this essay, which was not entirely coherent, but full of slogans and motifs, that found a ready echo amongst oppositional forces, leftist, nationalist, and religious. The ideology relating to women was perhaps best expressed in the works of Ali Shariati, a hybrid of Fanonism, referring to Franz Fanon's advocacy of cultural authenticity against imperialism, and romanticized Shiism. In his essay, Fatima is Fatima, he held the prophet's daughter and the mother of martyrs as the ideal of Muslim womanhood, devout, modest, yet active in the struggle for righteousness and justice. This was contrasted to the modern woman, product and victim of Western consumerist capitalism, an exploited sex object and consumer of fashion and makeup. Secular women and leftists subscribed to elements of this ideology. Women in the Maoist Fidayin faction dressed themselves in shapeless Mao jackets and refused all ornament and makeup as symbols of Western capitalist exploitations. These ideas played into the initial support of Khomeini among leftists and secularists, anti-imperialist and anti-Western, seeking political and cultural authenticity and liberation. Of course, they soon discovered 
what the clerics had in store for them. But while opposing the Islamic regime, many secularist women's groups continued to seek this authenticity. The campaigns for women's rights and law reform have included women of diverse ideologies with pre prominent presence of various, various forms of Muslim or national feminism as distinct from the West and imperialist feminism. This trend is best based often on a re-reading of the canonical sources of Islam to discover the elements of real and original Islam that favor equality in public participation for women. Needless to say, they have uniformly failed to convince the, in brackets, real Muslims in authority or their populist following. Now, another issue in the question of authenticity is alcohol. Alcohol consumption and its prohibition in Islam is a potent and emblematic theme in the discourses of authenticity and difference in modern times. Degrees of prohibition and restrictions proclaim piety and authenticity against Western laxity and degeneracy, also related, related to permissive sexuality. We should note again, however, the kinship of these attitudes to those of Christian fundamentalists, notably leading to the notorious prohibition period in the USA. The explicit prohibition of alcohol in Islam, as well as the common breach of this prohibition in so many social contexts historically and at present, has made for a potent theme in moral and cultural discourse. Many Muslims flouted the prohibition, some with a trust in God's mercy towards faithful sinners, others with explicit rationalization, commonly the view that the prohibition is a matter of social order against the drunkenness of the common and ignorant people and should not apply to the refined elite. The tension between commandment and practice, however, offered a fertile theme for poetry, narrative, mysticism, and humor. Classical belles narratives and essays feature tales and humor about drink. A notable genre of poetry is labeled khamriyat, wine literature, including prominent names in the literary canon, notably the Abbasid poet Abu Nuwas, among many others throughout history until now. Books on medicine, Ibn Sina and Al-Razi, contain chapters on wine considered favorable to digestion and balance of the humors. Alcohol and the imagery of intoxication are common elements in the lore of Sufi mysticism. While some apologists have argued that this is purely lit literary device or a spiritual analogy, not referring to real practice, we do, we do know that many of the mystics uh, and some tariqas, uh, notably the Bektashi order in Turkey and the Balkans, used alcohol as part of their ceremony. The majority of Sufis, however, frowned on the practice. Much of popular as well as literary humor revolves around tales of the hypocrisy of pious people, including clerics, with regard to drink and intoxication. In short, the law of alcohol is a potent element in diverse cultural fields in Middle Eastern history and society. Now, who drunk? The courts drunk and the elites cultivated cultures of drink over successive Muslim dynasties. 
the Abbasid caliphs at the uh, perceived golden age of Islamic civilization included prominent drinkers, and the said Abu Nuwas was a favorite in the court of Harun al-Rashid at the peak of that dynasty. The manuals of mirrors for princes, a genre of Machiavelli-style advice to princes, included sections on the etiquette adab of drinking parties and entertainments. Many reportedly drank to excess in continuous parties over many days. The Emperor Babur um, in the uh, 1483-1530, the conqueror of India and the first Mughal ruler, wrote an, an autobiography, which I recommend, it's a wonderful book, called the Babur Nama, in which he is candid about his dual vices of drink and love of boys, which he strived to control in bouts of piety. Literary narratives and diaries tell of the drinking parties of notables and men of state, including qadis and doctors of law. The picaresque tales by essayists relate to episodes that feature drink as a common indulgence in taverns and markets for ordinary urban people. Drinking, however, always proceeded in the shadow of official censure, if not prohibitions. Authorities would occasionally crack down on drinking and taverns with arbitrary punishments. These were often gestures in periods of political contests over piety or measures to ensure control over social spaces. One such period was the reign of the Ottoman, stern Ottoman Sultan Murad IV, who ruled between 1623 and 1640, who prohibited alcohol, coffee, and tobacco, sanctioned by severe penalties, including death. He was also known to be a heavy drinker, and his early death is attributed by some historians to liver disease. It is related that this ruler wandered the street of Constantinople in disguise to check for himself that his edicts were obeyed. On one such expedition, it is told, he took a boat ride across the Bosporus and noticed that the boatman was drinking from a bottle. Suspicious, he asked to taste the liquid, finding it was wine. He admonishes the man for disobeying the edicts at which the boatman demands, who do you think you are? At the Sultan's reply, the man mockingly retorts, one draft and you think you are the Sultan. The example of Murad IV and the many other drinking Sultan is paradoxically pertinent to the current piety campaign by Prime Minister Erdogan and his AKP party and his supporters presenting themselves as the new Ottomans, renewing the imperial greatness of Turkey and its moral regeneration. Yet another tale of authenticity renewed. The story of Murad IV illustrates an important general point, still relevant today. Prohibitions of alcohol are as much to do with social control as piety and observance. Murad, we note, also banned coffee and tobacco. This was part of a general religious and political campaign against the then emergent coffee house in which these items were enjoyed. In the early days of the coffee house, many scholars ruled that coffee was an intoxicant again akin to wine. In fact, the Arabic word qahwa, 
for coffee, commonly now, before coffee was discovered, actually applied to wine. And the Said Abu Nuwas actually had a notable qasida uh, on qahwa, by which he meant wine. So this linguistic association also played a part. These venues constituted spaces, uh, these venues of the coffee house, constituted spaces of sociability, mixing, and entertainment outside the control of authority, much like taverns. We have a literary portrayal of this phenomenon in Orhan Pamuk's novel, My Name is Red, of the coffee house harboring poets, entertainers, and storytellers considered subversive by local fundamentalist imam who ultimately leads his flock on an attack to destroy the cafe. Cafes continued to be venues of free sociability and later political discourse, distrusted by the authorities. Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the end of the 19th century and into the 20th, the last authoritarian Ottoman ruler, was famous for his network of spies, many of them reporting from cafes. Prime Minister Erdogan now responded to protests of his edict to limit the hours of permissible dispensing of alcohol by advising his critics to drink at home. Public space is to be saved from alcohol and its accompanying sociability. To that end, Erdogan directed the drink that drinking should not be visible on the terraces of bars and restaurants, but controls to the interiors. I'm told it doesn't work. Turkey and alcohol is a good illustration of a clash within civilization with regard to different registers of, of authenticity. Drink in public, in state receptions, elegant bars, and social functions became part of the society and culture of modernity and reform in Turkey from the 19th century. It was a sign of being modern and civilized, medeniyet, for the new classes of intellectuals, professionals, and functionaries, but predominantly male. Receding to some degree under the Islamic stance, Abdul Hamid II, it came to full expression under the secular republic with its hero Ataturk, a notable and public drinker. And drink continued to be an important element in the lifestyles of the middle classes in Istanbul and the major cities. The AKP and its constituencies in the Anatolian pious bourgeoisie are now asserting their culture and lifestyle in a culture war against the previously dominant secular elites, and alcohol is a potent symbol. Then we come to music. Music has constituted the field of interesting issues of authenticity. Whether music is forbidden or restricted in religious law has been an issue of dispute and the disapproval of music, song, and dance, widely disregarded throughout Muslim history, even by religious groups themselves, as in the case of many Sufis. Interestingly, in the emergence of modern art form in the 20th century, so much of the classical and folk music has come from religious sources. Many of the renowned singers of the early 20th century 
started their careers as religious chanters. Even the great diva Ummu Kalthum started her career dressed as a boy singing in Molids, uh, celebrations of the Prophet's birthday. Some even retained their religious titles, like Sheikh Imam, the singer of radical political satire in 1970s Egypt. Many of the perennially popular songs, such as, for those of you who are familiar with Arabic songs, Zoruni Bil Sana Marra, was adapted by Sayyid Darwish in the early 20th century from Mullah Uthman al Mosuli, a religious chanter and com- a composer who sang it as Zor Qabr al Habib Marra. So, whereas Mosuli was talking about the uh, visitation to the tomb of the Prophet, uh, Sayyid Darwish made it into uh, a love song. Uh, this uh, Uthman al Mosuli, Mullah Uthman, uh, was a notable uh, figure in song and poetry. He lived between 1854 and 1923 and is credited with the development of the Iraqi maqam. Uh, but he was a, a cosmopolitan, a kind of native cosmopolitan, not the European cosmopolitan of uh, uh, other, uh, in other contexts, because he functioned between his uh, native Baghdad and Mosul and into Istanbul. At one time he was a, a protege of the uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid, uh, and into uh, Persian language and Persian songs. So he sang and wrote poetry in all three languages and moved between uh, the different countries, including Egypt, where he influenced Said Darwish, uh, as uh, I already mentioned. Mullah Uthman was also the progenitor of one of the most popular Iraqi songs, Fogul Nakhal Fog, Above the Dead Palms, Above the Dead Palms which started as Fog al-Arsh, Fog Mi'raj Abu Ibrahim, Fog al-Arsh Fog. So it started again in a religious con- context about the Mi'raj and then developed into a popular uh, love song. Two of the most popular early modern female singers in Iraq started as chanters in women's ceremonies. Sadiq al-Mullaya, as her name indicates, was a Mullaya, and Zuhur Hussein. Abdul Muttalib, renowned Egyptian singer of the early 20th century, famously used religious metaphor and sacred geography in his popular love songs. Uh, one of his most famous songs, Ya Salat Zain, followed by a uh, song says, Sakin fi hayil sayyida wa habibi sakin fil Hussein, wa alashan al-nur kullu riza yomata ruhlu marratain. I inhabit the quarter of the Sayyidah Zainab, and my beloved inhabits Al Hussein, another sacred location. And to achieve maximum merit, I visit him each day twice. Yet music remained a field of social ambiguity. Performers were divided between some respectable male vocalists who were likened to religious chanters and called a qari' and the instrumentalists and female singers who were morally suspect. In Iraq, as well as the Maghreb, instrumentalists were predominantly Jewish and female co- performers considered prostitutes. It was in the emerging notion of national culture, of the national musical art, that the two merged in the first half of the 20th century. And the en- venue, one of the venues of this entity was the radio. 
Radio Baghdad started in 1936, and its first orchestra was almost entirely Jewish, while the singers, still morally suspect, became the practitioners of national culture. It was at the Cairo Congress of Arab Music in 1932 that the question of tradition and authenticity was raised. Innovators, notably Muhammad Abdul Wahab, famous Egyptian composer and musician and singer, were adapting Western forms of orchestration to new Arab music. It was the Hungarian composer Bela Bartok who reproached the modernist with abandoning tradition, and the latter responded that without progress and innovation, traditions ossify and die. Abdul Wahab's ventures into synthesis led to the following apocryphal story. It is related that when the Vienna Philharmonic played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at the Cairo Opera House, some in the crowd were indignant at the apparent plagiarization of Abdul Wahab. It was this same Bartok who apparently played a part in the game of authenticity in early Republican Turkey. Martin Stoke, who may be in the audience, uh, in his arabesque debate gave a fascinating account of the attempts by the Republican cultural regime to trace pure Turkish musical forms liberated from the oriental accretions of Arabs and Persians. Teams of researchers toured the, toured the Anatolian countryside collecting samples of folk music with the saz as its favored instrument. They concluded that the structure of pure Turkish music was distinct from the Oriental and akin to the European, especially the Hungarian, and this was com confirmed by Bartok. Henceforth, Oriental music was spurned from Turkish radio, which would only broadcast the pure Turkish classical and folk. Many listeners turned to Radio Cairo for their favored styles. In the later decades of the century, from the 1970s, coinciding with the rise of the Islamic current, but distinct from it, Oriental-type music, termed arabesque, emerged as a popular genre, part of a counterculture defying the republican norms. Singers like Ibrahim Tatlusi emerged as folk heroes with colorful lives and amorous adventures. The Republican bourgeoisie of Istanbul and Ankara reacted with alarm to the barbarian invasion from Anatolia, sweeping their cities with poor migrants, nouveau riche provincials, and their cultural items of Islam, Arabesque, and Lahmajun parlors. Lahmajun being Lahmabajin, the now widely known as Turkish pizza. Eventually, all these items were granted official respectability with the conciliatory genius of Turgut Ozal, Prime Minister in the uh, 1980s in his regime, befriending prominent Arabesque practitioners, including the said Tatlasi, and partaking in their popular glamour. The, the vibrant scenes of world music has had many inputs from Middle Eastern and Oriental music in the various fusions, showing a refreshing disregard for authenticity, but not for musical tradition. Some fusions have brought together strands of what is thought to be historically contingent, such, such as that between Arab Andalus music 
and the modern flamenco, notably in groups like Radio Tarifa, uh, with a reference to the mainland Spanish spot, spot nearest to Morocco. Flamenco has also proved popular for such fusions, notably with Indian Sufi Qawali chants. Now, I have time, food, briefly. Food, gastronomy, cookery now occupy a prominent space in media, entertainment, and health public discourses. Questions of national and cultural authenticity and origins play a prominent part in these discourses. Witness the sometimes comic dispute over the nationality of hummus, now on the shelves of every supermarket and apparently of the fridges of nearly half British households. In this globalization, there is a tension between authenticity and innovation. Witness the great variety of hummus flavors on these shelves, including Moroccan hummus, which may come as a surprise to Moroccans. <laughs> Questions of authenticity in Middle Eastern cuisines arise in various contexts, notably in the claims to origin and ownership of valued food items and traditions. Writers on cookery and culinary cultures seem obsessed with historical origin. Iraqi, Iranian, Greek, and Turkish writers are keen to claim that the food of the whole region originate in their lands or ancestral civilizations, whether Mesopotamian, Persian, or Byzantine. One such dispute is over baklava. Is it Arab, Greek, or Turkish? The etymological indeterminacy of the word leads to many guesses as to its origin. Arabs and Greeks question Turkish origin. How can the ancestral Turkish nomads have come up with such a sophisticated pastry, they ask. Surely it must be Byzantine or Levantine. Charles Perry, a food scholar, advanced an intriguing thesis regarding Turkish origin. It was precisely the technical backwardness of the nomads that could have given rise to proto-baklava. From his reading of old Arabic manuscripts about Turks, he found the narratives that in their effort to reproduce urban thick bread but without ovens, they layered their sarge-cooked yufkas, sheets like filo pastry, they layered those with butter between the layers to produce an imitation of oven bread, and it is this that may have evolved into baklava. Needless to say, this thesis did not find favor with Greeks who found Byzantine antecedents. The truth of the matter is that food cultures in the Middle East and everywhere else are the product of long evolutions and diffusions brought about by the cultural syntheses of empires, of which the Ottoman synthesis was the most recent and the influential on the present. Our food has evolved more in the last one or two centuries, and even more in the last 50 years, than for much of recorded history. Witness the revolutions brought about by the imports from the New World, tomatoes, peppers, po potatoes, maize, fasulia, tobacco, and many other things. Can you imagine Middle Eastern or Mediterranean food without the tomato, or Northern European food without the potato, or Indians without the chili? 
The idea of national and regional cuisine is a product of the modern age of nation-states and territorial integration, education, media, social and spatial mobility, and intensification of trade and distribution. The idea of a distinct Italian cuisine only emerged after the unification of the country in the later 19th century. Middle Eastern food cultures have much in common as variations on common themes, kebabs, stuffed vegetables, koftas, etc., but with notable fundamental variations, not always following national boundaries, but determined by regional groupings and ecologies. We may, for instance, discern a cross-cultural and cross-ethnic region of southern Anatolia with its multiple ethnicities, Turkish, Kurdish, Armenian, Greek, and Arab. Of this Anatolia, the Arab Levant and Cyprus forming a distinct food culture, distinct from Istanbul or from the Greek mainland, as well from other parts of the Arab world. It's also this food culture which has proved a great potential for globalization through diasporas, restaurants, trade, travel, books, and media. In the process, it is also transformed. Witness doner kebab of meatloaves, turkey, and even pork, or the said Moroccan hummus. Indeed, the very astonishing spread of hummus, let alone lahmacun as Turkish pizza. Food media, cookery books, and restaurants now call it Eastern Mediterranean cuisine. In conclusion, the question for the quest for cultural authenticity is sharpened by two broad factors at the present time. Globalization, rather than spreading uniformity, the so-called McDonaldization, it sharpens distinctions. The global stage of media, travel, and diasporas challenges, challenges each group to, defi to define and boast its culture, which stimulates displays, constructions, and inventions of authenticity. The other one is identity politics within this world of plural presences and mirrors. Identity cannot be taken for granted and is constantly defined in terms of difference and distinction, further calling on essences of identity and history. Thank you. Fascinating, stimulating talk. Uh, I particularly like the idea of proto Proto-Maclava. Uh, right, I, can I open the floor then uh, to anybody for questions? Uh, yes. Could you start by oh, saying sorry. who you are? Um, I'm Hilary Kalmbach of University of Sussex. Um, I am very interested in your discussion of various cultural fusions, and I was wondering if your investigation into these, these varied aspects has um, shed any light on what makes a fusion work, uh, what makes it um, 
be accepted as authentic as opposed to rejected as you know, inauthentic. Uh. Um, well, I think it's precisely because fusion works in so many fields that it sharpens the quest for authenticity. That in fact, you know, if you look, the thing about the idea of culture, multiculturalism, civilization, clash of civilization, it, the idea presupposes that there are sort of fixed unit cultures and fixed unit civilization. And that is patently not true in the modern world. And in fact, I don't know whether it's ever been true, because culture and civilizations are processes and they are flux. So in fact, everything we see is fusion. Even, uh, even the, the sort of most orthodox um, uh, Salafism or fundamentalism is, 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 is fusion. So in fact, it's precisely because fusion works in reality that you have the stimulus to claim authenticity and difference. Hi, my name's Malu Halasa. I'm an editor and writer. I'm very interested when you were talking in, in your Can you speak? when you're in your conclusion, you were talking about globalization sharpens distinction. Can you talk more about that? Um, yes, I suppose when when um, uh, people live in uh, relatively relatively stable, isolated communities, uh, the question of um, uh, identity and authenticity doesn't arise very much, except perhaps uh, you know in terms of their neighbours, one urban quarter against another, or or one tribe against another, or what have you. So whole, the whole question, in fact, the very concept of culture and cultural authenticity, only really arises in uh, the uh, context of uh, intensified communication uh, through uh, uh, partly well through diasporas uh, and you know communities from uh, one part of the world finding themselves in another i mean so many of the claims of difference and distinction uh, are common now in among um, immigrant communities in in um, the west um, and um, you know part uh, in fact some many writers on food have uh, Argued that uh, you know the, the development of particular uh, notions of uh, national food cultures are really uh, sharpened and led, lead to inventions in diasporic communities, and that's not only in relation to the Middle East, uh, but also I mean I've written on Indian food in, in this in this respect. Uh, so I think it's the uh, it's the <coughs> milieu of intensified. Uh, communication of uh, movement of peoples and movement of ideas and of uh, what we call globalization in, in this respect that uh, calls on people to define and demonstrate their their identity. Good afternoon. Uh, Malika Rubai Mamri from uh, National School of Political Science, Algeria. 
Right. My question is uh, related to the position of women in Islam. I mean, do you think, do you agree with many people, who, many scholars who say that uh, uh, women are marginalized in, are in, marginalized in Islam? I mean, they, they have a, a lower position in other sense. Thank you. Well, I mean, I, all I can say as a sociologist or historian um, is that there are different claims about women in Islam. And it's not for me to judge who is right. You know, it has to be a believer uh, who, 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 who makes that uh, decision. Of course, the believers disagree. And uh, as I say, as, a, as an observer, I can only uh, note and record and analyze these disagreements um, and the nature of the arguments on the different sides. I cannot be an arbiter to say who is right and who is wrong. My name is Ted Franklin. Would you say this um, pursuit of cultural identity is really a, an expression of enormous anxiety that we need to know who we are and so we chase after uh, we're, we're, we're these people and we're different from those people and so on. Because when I think of myself as uh, born here but of Irish parents, I would find it very difficult to um, define what does it mean to be English of Irish parents. Mm. Um, I'd have to sort of work at it, and, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't flow naturally. And uh, so if I was feeling more persecuted, might I, might I, my pursuit of cultural identity become more forceful? Well, yeah, I mean, I think this, they are, uh, I don't think there's a single uh, psychology of identity, and certainly what you uh, outline is, uh, must be, and, you know, intuitively we can say, must be an important factor in the uh, psychology of identity and identity politics. But there is also the politics uh, that, in fact, you know, claims of identity and cultural distinction uh, uh, enters into sort of political claims and counterclaims uh, and uh, of mobilization and agitation. So, in fact, there is that element in it as well. I mean, um, uh, don't, uh, this is especially the case in the uh, ideas about multiculturalism and the social policies in relation to multiculturalism, that in itself stimulates uh, identity discourses and definitions of culture, which is my culture and which is yours, and how we are different. Um. First of all, thanks very much for a really interesting talk. My name is Emmanuel Delius Posti. I'm sorry, I don't hear very oh, well. Oh, sorry. Um, thank you, first of all, for a very interesting talk. Um, my name is Emmanuel. I'm a PhD student at SOAS. And um, sort of just to follow up talking about identity, and forgive me if I'm rehashing old ground here, but um, I thought that your points were very pertinent in terms of how collective identifications are sort of percolated and crystallized within globalization and modernization. But I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on how you see the 
the distinction and the relationship between individual and collective processes of identity and identification. Yes, I think that's a very important issue because, you know, this comes to, to the question of um, uh, the claims of community, you know, of culture and community. You know, the idea, you know, what in, in the social sciences has become the kind of uh, a trend, the theory of uh, commun com communal communalism as against individualism, you know, the kind of reaction to um, liberal uh, ideas uh, and practices uh, and legal ideas and practices uh, which regard the individual as the uh, primary um, legal agent and as the primary unit of, of society. Um, and many have argued and claimed uh, that, in fact, you know, you have to take into recognize uh, sort of communal formations and communal cultures, uh, and that recognition is a very important part of um, reaching kind of fairness and equality in, in multicultural uh, society. Now, I mean, this is an issue, um, and um, uh, of course it would involve, I mean, I, uh, many individualists uh, in theory and in practice would uh, not want to go along with this idea. And how do you determine uh, whether an individual is subject to community X or community Y uh, or just a citizen of, uh, a com of common citizenship of the state? Uh, so that is the issue. And so clearly, it's, uh, you know, there are uh, many people who don't want to be classified in terms of their religious uh, affiliation. Um, um, or they want to uh, use their religious affiliation as a kind of cultural uh, pursuit rather than be part of the uh, legal uh, restrictions. You know, and you see that with Orthodox Judaism, you see that with Islam, you see that with um, uh, some branches of Christianity, and no doubt also many other religions. So I think it's an issue, but I don't know what else I can say about it. one of my own in that case. You, you, you more than once used the phrase clash of civilizations in your talk mm. and seemed quite comfortable and relaxed about it, whereas in some circles it's become a sort of dirty phrase, if not a dirty word. I wonder if you'd like to comment on it. Do you find it a useful, to what extent do you find it a useful concept? I'm sorry if I gave the idea or the impression that I uh, approved of... Uh, that uh, concept, you know, I mean, in fact, I've, I and many others, of course, have argued strongly against it. And what I said is that, um, you know, the clash is much more within civilizations and that civilizations are not sort of historically fixed units, but are in process of, of flux and fusion and mixing, as we see in the modern world. So the, the, the clash is within civilizations rather than between civilizations. Because, you know, how do you define that civilization? Uh, you know, how do you, as the gentleman here said earlier, you know, what, how, 
how do you know what it is to be English? You know, if you ask different people what it is to be English or British or European, then you'll get uh, very different and sometimes contradictory uh, answers. Uh, certainly, we see that examples of that every day in political pronouncements. Yes, there's a question at the bottom. Alan, um, uh, I'm afraid I, I was delayed by traffic, so I missed most of the talk, but uh, I hope you haven't covered this issue, or perhaps you have, and perhaps you can comment on it. Um, my, my question was about um, food culture and about nas national dishes. Uh, it's a, it might sound a bit trivial, but you know there have been instances where Israelis and Lebanese contest about who invented falafel and who invented hummus and this sort of thing. Um, do you think that area... Um, and it applies all over the world in different cases. Um, do, 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 do you think there's a, uh, it needs to be an area of clash or it could be a, a sense of shared identity? How would one manufacture uh, consent rather than contestation over claims of national dishes? Would um, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't hear very well, but I think I got the gist of the, the question. Um, well, I mean, I think the, this... Um, these ideas about uh, origin and identity of uh, food item or other cultural items, uh, they are amusing, but not, uh, you know, indeterminate in many ways. I think in the case of hummus, it's uh, quite clear that uh, it's a product of this uh, region I was talking about, you know, the Arab, the Arab Levant, southern Anatolia and Cyprus. Um, and so, and predominantly the Arab Levant. Um, so, I mean, it was, un for, for instance, in my, I grew up in Iraq, and in my childhood it was unknown. It came as a kind of uh, novelty. Uh, Syrian friends told us about hummus and made us taste it, or hummus botheena. Of course, hummus just means chickpeas. So, um, yeah, uh, so I, I find these uh, disputes about um, uh, origins and ownership uh, amusing, but in the, you know, inconclusive. Um, there are, of course, there are many arguments in terms of etymology of words. You know, if dolma is a Turkish word, therefore stuffed vegetables are Turkish. Or, and the problem about baklava is that it's etymologically indeterminate. It's not. There may be many guesses. Um, so again, you know, I've written on the vocabulary of food and its evolution. But, uh, there you are. Yes. Thank you. I'm um, uh, reminded, your talk reminded me of uh, the title of Fred Halliday's sadly unfinished biography, which was uh, autobiography, which was uh, when the Irish invented hummus. But um, <laughs> I wanted to broaden out the question to m more wide um, notions around the politics of identity. And you've written very persuasively about the, the possibility of different identities, competing identities, in Iraq after 1958. And I wondered if you could uh, apply that analytical framework to what seems to be at the moment a resurgence in, in from above and below uh, uh, aggressive assertions of both Shia and Sunni identity in the Middle East. Oh, that's a very big question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I should ask you that, perhaps. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I think in, 
In the case of Iraq, um, you know, in modern history, among you know the uh, intelligentsia and the modern middle classes, um, the contest was over Iraqiness. You know, they all wanted to be Iraqi. You know, it isn't that they said, no, no, we are Sunni and we are Shiite. And the contest, you know, the the um, uh, the imperative to define Iraqiness and to own it is part of the conflict. And also the conflict over the um, uh, the sectional identities, particularly the tribal. Everybody was against tribes at one point, and then they then under Saddam Hussein, as you know, uh, tribes became a, um, a feature of being genuine, authentic Arab. Um, and uh, uh, so, I mean, in this respect, then, um, I, I, I think, you know, at least among the Arab Iraqis, the, um, the, the sectarian conflict, uh, or, and sometimes uh, sectarian convergence, was over uh, Iraqiness, and um, what is happening now is uh, a product of um, uh, uh, the the kind of superimposition of uh, sectarian identity uh, over geopolitical uh, <coughs> conflicts. Um, which intensifies them and brings in many more actors with uh, and much greater violence. Uh, so I don't. I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it in this context. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure how well I can frame this question, but within globalization and all these forces, within globalization, uh, I'm Roger Hardy, a Brisbane member and a journalist. Not all the forces are equal. And it's, it's surely there is some justice to say that globalization seen as a negative from developing world societies is dominated by Western players, is dominated by... Hollywood and Starbucks uh, and so on. How much, in the context of what you've been talking about, how much justice do you see in that claim that it's a Western-dominated, perhaps even in some eyes a Western-inspired globalization that is, seemed, that is deemed to be undermining uh, local cultures and cultural authenticity? Well, um, I mean, that is clearly the case. The, but I want to emphasize that it is one thing to talk about globalization as Western cultural dominance, and another thing to see these cultural features as parts of modernity and capitalism, which originated in the West. So, in fact, you know, one of the uh, elements of this is consumerism and um, shopping malls and, you know, the whole, the whole complex that uh, the Iranians of the 1960s and 70s that I was talking about uh, were protesting against. Um, 
but this in a sense is is part of um, this the spread of capitalism and the inclusion uh, in in the world market of more and more uh, regions and of course uh, the media of globalization themselves are also uh, part of this uh, and so it is I mean, it is obviously this is a potent element in the claims of cultural authenticity as against uh, this trend, as I tried to show in the uh, case of the kind of Iranian um, nativist uh, ideologies. Um, but of course, they, they also merges. I mean, uh, there's been, you know, one uh, uh, observation by a journalist of uh, the uh, um, sort of modern uh, housing developments in, the, in the, on the posh suburbs of Istanbul, of the gated communities. Um, and the conclusion he reached uh, is that it was a mixture of uh, Islam and America. Uh, so Islam and America then merged, and of course you can see this also in, uh, in the case of the consumerist cultures of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, and everywhere else, you know, that uh, uh, the claim of authenticity is always in terms of Islam, and yet uh, Islam, while for them prohibiting uh, so many uh, things, particularly uh, sort of personal liberties, at the same time is perfectly uh, compatible with consumerist culture. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Ahmed. Uh, my question is uh, about linguistic identity, uh, particularly in an area which is perhaps less linguistically homogenous as North, uh, the example of North Africa, the Berber issue. Um, how important a, a role do you think language plays um, in shaping uh, political and ideological discourses, particularly in a region uh, like North Africa where uh, linguistic minorities, so to speak, uh, can use their l linguistic identity to confront maybe authoritarian structures of power? Well, I mean, I think you, you've answered that question, really. I mean, that is the case, yes. Uh, and, of course, that is also true in, um, uh, you know, the, in terms of uh, Kurdish uh, struggles for autonomy, or, uh, independence, recognition. Um, and, uh, uh, but I think, you know, that... Uh, uh, many uh, of these um, sort of ethnic linguistic identities and the uh, and the conflicts that they generate are of course a, a feature of modernity and the, the modern state you know that for a long time people may have been proud of their language or their uh, poetry or their music or whatever but they didn't see it as a uh, a political platform, as it was, a as a, uh, a basis for claims of political recognition or autonomy. I mean, that was the case for much of Ottoman history, for instance, in relation to the Middle East and probably to North Africa. Um, <clears throat> but now there is also the discovery of history and of historical narration. So now I've seen recently, for instance, in relation to North Africa, uh, that, you know, when it comes, you know, the Arabs and Muslims are so proud of uh, the, their past in Spain and of the flourishing uh, of Spanish, Andalusian, Arab uh, 
civilization. And now, of course, some of the Berber uh, spokespeople are uh, emphasizing that all this was really Berber. The Tariq bin Ziyad, the general who invaded Spain from North Africa, was a Berber, and they give him a Berber name as well. Uh, so this discovery of history, as it were, is also a kind of reinforcing element in the uh, uh, kind of sectional nationalisms of that kind. And certainly, as you say, uh, I mean, certainly with my very, very scant knowledge of North Africa and uh, of Algeria, you know, that obviously uh, Berberist uh, political advocacy played a very important part in the modern politics uh, of the country and of the region. As, it, as Kurdish uh, politics continues to be a dominant theme in, in Middle Eastern politics. Okay. Uh, right, well we've come to quarter past seven, so if there are no further questions, I think it's now time for me to hand over to Toby Dodge for the second part of the evening. But before I do that, uh, perhaps we could express our appreciation again to Sami Sabeda for...